What's happening to news? Is your echo chamber taking you where you want to go? Pompeo and NPR, just who do you believe? All this and the tragedy of nine deaths on this week's Three C's in a Pod. Three C's in a Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors. A look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Bashan Mann, and with me on the show today are Chris Savello and John Schofield. We want to thank you for being with us. For more of the Provision Conversation, follow us on Twitter and give us your thoughts at ProV Advisors. That's P-R-O-V Advisors. Or check us out on the web, www.provisionadvisors.net. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. First up is Rearview Mirror. Chris, I'm going to go to you first. What did you see in your Rearview Mirror? Well, it was a very busy week as, uh, as our conversations will, uh, will detail over the next hour. Um, but for, for Rearview, for me, I want to start with the kerfuffle between the State Department communications team, Secretary Pompeo, and the NPR correspondent, Michelle Kellerman. I hope I'm saying that right. There was a, uh, a disagreement over the types and, I guess, difficulty of the questions that Michelle asked Secretary Pompeo um, devolved immediately into a he said, she said in terms of what the ground rules were. Mm-hmm. And then just turned ugly, ugly in the sense that allegedly Secretary Pompeo, former congressman, former head of the CIA, number one in his class at West Point, began shouting and cursing at Michelle after the interview, trying to take her to task for what he believed were out of bounds questions. And so the, there's lots of significance here for me, but one, just when you thought the discourse and the relationship between senior government officials and the media couldn't get any worse. You get something like this. And I think that kind of stands on its own. And then to add insult to injury, Michelle, who was next up in the, um, in the cycle to be the pool producer for the, the upcoming trip of the Secretary of State, she was booted off of that trip. So you have Continued caustic uh, relations between senior government officials and recognized significant media. You have this misunderstanding and essentially bending of the truth as to what the ground rules were. And then you have petulant behavior after the fact and kicking Michelle off the trip. Not a good week for the State Department. Not a good week for professional communicators. Um, This is, uh, it kind of goes very much hand in glove to what we talked about last week in terms of if this behavior continues to occur, um, the communication landscape at the government level, it will continue to to change. And uh, as I've said many times, I I fear we'll, we'll be unable to get back to a place of normalcy and civility. Over to you guys to, you know, for your thoughts on that. Yeah, the, I thought the, the biggest thing that colored that event um, was the the truly childish jibe at the end of Pompeo's statement where he said, oh yeah, by the way, uh, Bangladesh is nowhere near Ukraine. And, you know, again, the, the Chris mentioned taking sides here. Who do you believe? Um, do, do we have, has so much credibility eroded away from the 
the administration that we naturally, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, that we naturally think uh, that the administration is lying and not the reporter or, um, you know, the MAGA types will say, of course, the reporter's wrong and didn't know Bangladesh from Aruba from, you know, jolly old England from Ukraine. Um, you know, that's why they're fake news and that's why they suck. Uh, I, I have a hard time with this. You know, this reporter um, was very highly educated. Now, I, I feel the three of us are very highly educated, and it would probably take me a minute to find Bangladesh and also take me a minute to find Ukraine. But I, I have to imagine that this woman who actually had a, a European studies background knows where the F Ukraine is. And, and it was almost like it didn't need to be in the State Department statement at the end. But it was truly that way of saying, all right, now I've called her a liar. I've told her that she did this wrong. I've, I've voiced my concern. And, and in a very Trump-like way, he couldn't let the statement end without slapping her around a little bit. Um, now, whether he lied about that or whether he's being truthful about that almost doesn't matter because it's just a douchey thing to say. Bash, before you jump in, I mean, John, you, you raise a lot of good points. It, it is um, a jackass thing to say. It lacks civility and any sort of professionalism. I think if you look at the emails that were released and run by the New York Times after the fact, it does very much appear that he, he lied. Um, and I'm not sure that whatever she picked on the map really matters. I mean, at the end of the day, she had legitimate questions about the Secretary of State and the administration's conduct surrounding the Ukraine issue. Uh, and so whether she can find it on the map, to your point, John, really doesn't matter. Bash, I'd be interested in your thoughts. It, so strip away the lack of civility, strip away the lack of professionalism. How about uh, in terms of ground rules? I mean, any, any thoughts on that? And I don't want to sidetrack you if you had a different view, but I do, before we move on to the next one, I think that is a point to a uh, teaching point in terms of uh, you know, discussing ground rules, sticking to ground rules, and then what happens if one or more have a, um, a, a misunderstanding as to whether the ground rules were followed? Yeah, Chris, uh, thanks for setting it up that way. Uh, it's, it's very simple, and this harkens back to uh, any Dinfos trained killer, uh, you know, worth their weight knows. Um, you, set up, you set up ground rules before an interview. Um, so a, a good communications uh, expert, a good PAO, a uh, spokesperson is going to set that interview up uh, for their boss uh, and say, hey, look, here's what we're going to talk about. These are the topics we're going to discuss. It doesn't mean that you're going to get the questions in advance. I mean, we know that that sort of depends on the relationship, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't go in to interviews expecting that. Um, but we can set up uh, certain parameters to say, look, this is, what, this is what the boss is going to be talking about. These are the questions uh, that he's looking to, to expound upon. Uh, and then also... Was there a public affair? Now, look, I know this doesn't always happen, but I, I, I think there's a good amount of time, at least in my professional career, where I saw, uh, or me as as the PAO, I sat in there uh, with the principal and the reporter uh, in case something does go awry or there's a question uh, that strays away from the uh, from the previously established ground rules. Then you, as the PAO, can step in and say, "Hey, look, that you know that's something that we're not going to be talking about. Uh, I can speak to you." Um, off the record later on and, and, and maybe provide some background uh, after the interview. I mean, that's just as, as PA professionals, uh, we want to protect uh, the institution. We want to protect 
uh, our bosses and make sure that we're putting our best, um, you know, our giving, giving them the best uh, opportunity uh, for, for a good quality interview. I mean, that's going to help the reporter and it's going to help uh, uh, the people that we're advocating for so, so that everyone gets what they want in the end. Um, and, and in this case, we, we saw where uh, I don't really know if there was a, a PR professional in the room that could have stepped in and, and addressed that as it happened. And then at the end, what we're seeing, what you guys have just previously talked about with the aftermath of this thing and what we're seeing playing out on social media and other media platforms, and for me, it just boils down to uh, doth do protest too much. It would have went away, but yet here the State Department and, and Pompeo, uh, through his spokesperson, had to had to drag this out even further. And you just actually wind up looking silly, in my opinion. You bring up a good point, Bashan, in that I, I doubt, no matter how smart Pompeo thinks he is, no matter his graduating class status at West Point or whether he ran the CIA or whether he ran a Wawa, um, yeah, the the fact remains that there is a there is an issue with their relations with the press, and that has been dictated from uh, the tweets that his boss sends out and and this general feeling that that they've bubbled up and, and let froth over uh, the, the chanting and the taunting of press at Trump rallies, they have truly vilified them. So if there was a PAO in the room, and I have to imagine there was, um, that that PAO is now, to use one of my favorite words, complicit in the, in, in the um, either a completely unprofessional uh, performance by the boss, by Pompeo, uh, do you actually let your boss um, in any situation bring out a map and try to make a fool out of a reporter? I, I think I would have stepped in and said, hey, boss, I, I, don't, I don't really think that that's where we need to go. Let, let's cut it off and, and go from here. Um, or that PAO knows that that woman found Ukraine instead of Bangladesh on the map and then let a statement go out that is a lie. So... That no matter what the truth is, it doesn't reflect well, uh, to, to bring it right back to how Chris said it, it doesn't reflect well at all on, on the PA staff, on Pompeo, and on the Civ Mill gap. In this particular case, it's Civ Media gap uh, that exists between the State Department and the press. And it, and it, it, it just hurts everybody involved. I, I didn't walk away from this more upset at Mike Pompeo or more... Um, irritable about uh, about what they do and do not do vis-a-vis -vis the press. I just walked away from it feeling really just depressed that that this is where we are as a nation. It's emblematic of where we are as a nation, and and that's that's sad. I think it's very important to view this as you guys have. Strip away the the Trump uh, characteristics. Strip away the current trends and look at hey, if this were if this were me and my boss um, had an issue with the ground rules after the fact or was annoyed by the reporter, or even if the reporter was annoyed by my boss, how do I as a professional communicator try very hard to keep or put this back on the, on the rails? And, and you know, maybe we go back and create uh, our own XYZ case for a future deep dive um, to kind of walk through that. But that's what I think it's important for us and for members of our audience to really think about. 
um, after all the vitriol is stripped away, like how would you handle this? Definitely something that's going to, uh, we're going to continue to talk about. Thanks, Chris. Uh, John, what grabbed your attention last week? Switching gears a little bit to, uh, again, from discussions of really uh, dysfunctional relationships with the, with the media and the audiences to really functional and successful relationships with the media and the audiences. Uh, my former boss, uh, Chris's former boss uh, from days past two, uh, Ted Carter, retired vice admiral, uh, used to be the superintendent of the uh, Naval Academy, among other things, has just recently in the last four weeks uh, been confirmed um, as the president of the University of Nebraska uh, system there in uh, Nebraska. And a great honor for him, previously commanded the War College, previously at the Naval Academy, obviously is well suited uh, for that kind of a role. Uh, the greatest thing that, that I uh, remember and, and enjoyed about working for uh, Admiral Carter uh, is that Ted really got it. He understood the value of communications. He understood the value of the press. He always viewed it with, uh, he was a really, really smart guy and basically was a badass aviator and had every reason to be, um, you know, kind of Mike Pompeo-like in his approaches to the press, to act like he knew it all, to act like he had it and he didn't need any help. And, you know, I don't really need to do this. I'm, I'm much more of a pointy-nosed airplane flying operator. Uh, but he he definitely got it, and uh, I've I've been really struck by how active he's been since he's gotten into the position down there, posting a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, his latest post, uh, which I shared with you guys uh, earlier this week, was you know, a really upfront and open and refreshing uh, post on LinkedIn about using the radio to get the the word out. Uh, to the audiences about what's happening at the University of Nebraska, understanding that a lot of people in Nebraska and rural areas are probably reliant on radio a lot. Um, and, and it just was a sign that, that Ted still has it from when he was you know, the, the XO of Harry S. Truman to when he was the superintendent of the Naval Academy. It, it's a refreshing look at how he understands that he has to use many mediums uh, to get his message out, particularly here in the nascent stages of his uh, of his term, when he's trying to get people to understand who he is and what's important and why they should pay him a ton of money to run the University of Nebraska school system there, um, he he's going out and actively getting the word out about his five year plan, who he is, why he thinks this job is great, and he's doing it everywhere from radio to LinkedIn and all the, uh, all the avenues in between. So I was very impressed by that. He's a great communicator and the, the University of Nebraska PA staff is very lucky. I want to second much of what you said for communicators that are listening. Uh, if you're interested in what right looks like as an example for your boss or what you should have a program emulate, I would encourage you to look at what Ted is doing in Nebraska. He has always been a guy that understood the value of communication, the value of explaining to people in a way that they get the importance of what the mission is at hand, whether that mission is launching and recovering aircraft in a time of war on board a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, or whether it's developing a strategy program at the War College or whether it's morally, mentally, and physically um, developing midshipmen at the Naval Academy and now in his role as the 
the head of the Nebraska college system. He has always understood how to link his strategy uh, and explain his strategy in a way that the audience gets. He's never really gotten hung up on the medium. He's figured out how to find the right medium that is right for his audience first, and then he adapts his style to that. Um, there are just so many, um, you know, strong and positive lessons if you look at a guy like Ted Carter that a lot of people could learn from. And uh, really happy for him, and uh, really appreciate you uh, you bringing this up. I've enjoyed following him, and and I'll just end with this that. It's a sign of who Ted Carter was and is that as we were coming out of a year-long uh, high-profile sexual assault case uh, where his predecessor is the superintendent uh, as the convening authority for the courts martial in that case uh, was, was extremely restricted in what he could say to the press and thus didn't say anything uh, out of fear of unlawful command influence. Um, but even despite that case, uh, the, the previous superintendent, with no disrespect to him, I, I was a huge fan of his as well, was less willing to do media, uh, didn't like it, didn't see the utility in it, and did sort of have this Pompeo-like us versus them mentality about them. If he, if he had to guess how the media was going to treat him and he had to pick between them treating them like crap or treating them well, he'd be like, well, they're probably going to treat them like crap. And, and try as I did, I could never get him out of that. Ted Carter, within his first month of showing up at the U.S. Naval Academy, went and played an away game and did a Washington Post editorial board at the Washington Post. Went into the lion's den after a year of the Washington Post kicking us around on the sexual assault issue at the Naval Academy. Went right in there and fearlessly delivered his messages and what he thought was going to be important and that guided him through the rest of his tour. He, he was well-respected and well-liked by the media. I think he's doing the very same thing in Nebraska. Within his first days as the confirmed president, he is going out there and just showing how open and transparent he is. And, and that's a great lesson for PAOs out there. Go in there and, and, and push your bosses to be, to be open, transparent, and take some chances. Play some away games because Ted Carter's killing it. Thanks, John. That is, uh, that is a story that we're going to continue to watch. And uh, Chris, as you mentioned, uh, we, we all know uh, Ted Carter from uh, over the course of range of our Navy careers. So uh, this is definitely good to see. Uh, we'll continue to take note. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going uh, to flip this coin here a little bit, going from that last story uh, to something we have talked about on this podcast quite a bit. Um, there is an Axios story uh, that appeared this morning uh, from Sarah Fisher that talks about the echo chambers uh, that exist uh, across our nation and how they're getting worse. Uh, the story centers on a Pew Research study that talks about how not just in, uh, in news, uh, in news consumption, but also in, in terms of our, our cultures as well uh, that, are, uh, that are beginning to polarize us or, or have been polarizing us um, as a country. Uh, and it and it basically suggests that the trends are are going beyond our, our news mediums. Um, if you look at in, in the story, they talk about uh, how we consume uh, our entertainment, um, and and this, it, it comes as no surprise to us. It's something that we talk about. Uh, if you were to look at say uh, the the Kennedy Awards, uh, we know where 
uh, where, where that now leans in terms of who's paying attention uh, to the Kennedy honors uh, each year. Uh, it talks about um, how Democrats um, uh, like their television uh, versus how Republicans like their television and, and some of the trends um, that, that push us uh, in, into the consumption uh, of our entertainment. And it's just a really, um, I mean, for the, for the work that we do, uh, it's a very compelling study uh, and, and collection of research uh, that just shows this, this divide uh, getting, getting wider. And, and look, I, it, if it seems like we talk about this uh, from one week to the next, it's because uh, I believe we all feel uh, that it is, it is a critical point uh, in, our, in our nation um, where we are asking ourselves, will we be able to get back uh, to a middle ground, a, a place of respect, uh, a place where we can listen uh, to one another and, and respect uh, where, where everyone is coming from. Uh, but again, uh, as, as this story suggests, uh, when you've got one side uh, sort of the, the, their circle is getting tighter and tighter in terms of, of, of where they will go for uh, quote unquote trusted uh, sources and, and another side trusting a wider uh, variety of, um, of new sources and entertainment sources. Uh, you've got two sides moving in different directions and essentially um, you're missing out or, or neglecting uh, what the uh, what the founders uh, e essentially wanted this country to be about. Um, anyone want to chime in on that? I'll just say that it, it is very emblematic of of where that divide is when the president of the United States calls Don Lemon of this of CNN dumb as a rock. Um, it, it, it's that's that is it in a nutshell. Uh, that that it shows people that they shouldn't get their news from there. And, and I do admit that MSNBC and CNN are slanted against the president and what he stands for, that Fox is just very slightly uh, slanted uh, in favor of the president, but not much. They are generally a very objective news crew. Um, that is obviously a joke. I think they're unbelievably uh, slanted. So the, the divide is there and it, and it, exacer it is exacerbated uh, and, and will continue to grow the more that norms are broken down where previously, like would FDR have ever called a reporter in public uh, dumb as a rock? Um, you know, with each one of these previously taboo things now happening and becoming mainstream, um, that's, that's, where, that's where the divide will, uh, will be maintained and grow even wider. Chris? So one, I thought Sarah's uh, reporting was, was fantastic. I mean, she did a great job of uh, distilling down a lar the larger Pew uh, research study, the work that Reuters has done, and, and uh, as well as other um, research. So uh, um, we're going to include this in our clips of the week. If you want to start with Sarah's, get the big picture, and then drill down on some of these other studies, I would encourage you to do that. I would also encourage you to sign up for Sarah's weekly newsletter. Uh, she puts a newsletter out on Tuesday that is just fantastic. If you're a media or communication professional and you're not reading Sarah's work, uh, I think you're missing out. 
where I'm conflicted is, is so she talks about, um, and, and we'll try not to turn this into a, a, a master's lecture. She talks about echo chamber as sort of the macro result of like-minded groups consuming like-minded information and having like-minded interactions. Um, so therefore, like your thoughts and, and words echo um, within the same group. Then there's the, the, the driver of that is the technology-driven filter bubble and this idea that um, Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, what, whatever, they are, because of the way they um, filter information and the algorithms they use, they are naturally putting you on the path to the echo chamber through these filter bubbles because you're only going to get news and information and hear from people that kind of fit your behavior. Uh, so anybody that doesn't fit your behavior filtered out unless there's some other uh, way for people to be included. So like a, an event like a Kobe Bryant death or an impeachment or something that is kind of even bigger than your normal behavior may break through. But for the most part, you're only getting the type of news that you self-select. Right. That's bad. Uh, that That's really bad. So in addition to kind of the behavioral issues that John talked about among the news media and how people treat news media, now you maybe knowing or unknowing are kind of selecting the type of information you get. And what this research says is it, it's driving behavior. It's driving beliefs and then it's driving behavior. Uh, and that's not good from a, from a sociological standpoint. I, I don't think it's good. The last thing I'll say is as a communicator, it's a real challenge because we've talked constantly about how do you break through? How do you break through the filter bubble? Um, this administration has really decided to use the filter bubble to their advantage. They use it to throw red meat to the base. They, I think, bank on the fact that the base and the people that they're going to raise money for and that they really want to get uh, out to elections are have self-selected, um, like being in an echo chamber, and they are using the filter bubbles uh, to their advantage by making fun of Don Lemon, by making fun of the, um, the distrusted media, talking about fake news, the ridiculous tweets, all of that actually feeds into the filter bubble of, of the base. And I would say also conversely, folks that have a different view on, on the president's behavior um, also use that, that filter bubble. And, and again, what we end up with is a huge divide and a kind of small group in the middle that either doesn't know where to go for information or doesn't know where to go to get correct information. That's the sociological problem. Let me just, let me really finish up with this. If you're a communicator, if you're a marketeer and you're selling soap, right? It's pretty challenging right now to break through on either filter bubble. Uh, so you either hit that small group in the middle or you've got to play into the filter bubble. Um, you've got to deliberately slant your communication or marketing to kind of be in both places. And I'm not sure brands really want to be there. I'm so glad that you brought that up because it makes me think about something I saw just uh, on this past Friday night. Um, someone that I follow on Twitter, just based on uh, proximity to, to where I live, uh, is a Capitol Hill bookstore. And, and you, you, Chris, you talked about the, the consumerism uh, piece of this. Um, as, as you may or may not know, so you had this past Friday, the, the March for Life uh, down here on the National Mall. Um, what I guess was thousands of people uh, that traveled uh, to D.C. to participate 
in, in something that happens every year. And actually, I believe this was the first year uh, that a president even participated uh, in the march uh, down on the mall. But I'm looking on Twitter, shocker, uh, to where uh, this, this establishment, Capitol Hill Books, made the following tweet. Sometimes it's good to do simple acts of service, like giving March to Lifers directions to the National Mall, thereby supporting local businesses in Anacostia. Now, here's the problem with that tweet. And when you talk about that, that small group in the middle, Chris, you see, if you follow Capitol Hill books, you, you realize that they are very much a left-leaning establishment. Um, okay, fine, I suppose. But in doing so, and, and this sort of speaks to the, the larger echo chamber story that we're talking about here, you, you alienate your, your business. You know, if, you, if you're in the business of selling books or, or selling soap, as you mentioned before, well, you want as many people as possible buying your product, I would assume. Um, however, what they found in reactions to this tweet, they were obviously trying to make a joke that is what, what the underlying thing in here is that people who are coming from, uh, you know, who knows, you know, anywhere or any city USA, that they would, instead of giving them uh, directions directly to the National Mall, they would send them to Anacostia. Right. And now see the reality to, of DC. Right, right. You know, or and, that and, part of DC. And the thing is, what what they missed, and they and as much as I went back and forth with them, they didn't really seem to understand that they got people from Anacostia upset, and they got right. people who were marched to lifers upset. Right. Like and, and it's like and and I and I tried to whoever it is behind their Twitter handle, I was trying to explain to them, like, look, you can't even admit that. It's not even worth your time right. to go to, to, to go on this platform instead of pushing out like what books you have in stock or uh, whatever it is to, to up, you know, build up your business and promote your business. You're sitting here trying to, to talk to both sides and explain how, oh, well, it was a joke and we support this. And that. Mm, you know what? Well, I in mean, the, in the end, you lose. Yeah, the, you lose because the algorithms make you lose. You um, so one. I mean, we've talked many times about there is no more nuance, there is no more humor, there is no more um, multi-layer conversations uh, able to be had in social media, and that's largely because of this filter bubble. It, it's why you're able to have an entire group of people believe that a mark, the march in Richmond, was either completely peaceful or completely white supremacist centered, right? Mm -hmm. And that the groups are unable to get information that, that shows the, the mix of both. It's why you're able to believe that in a, a DC pizza parlor it, down in the basement, people are held hostage. Uh, I, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, it really is something out of the Nazi era or out of George Orwell's 1984 in that an entire group of people, in this case on both sides, are sheltered from multiple opinions and multiple views of the same event. And, and it seems like they're kind of self-selecting to be that way. That, that's a problem. <laughs> It well, you and I, we've all talked about this, and Chris, I'll I'll tip my cap to you on on this. In that, a, a very very long time ago, you predicted this sort of polarized um, condition, and and predicted that it would go um, 
to places that were even worse than they are now. And, and I believe that you used the term civil war once. And it, it reminds me of, you, you brought up the, you know, the era of, of Nazi propaganda. You know, it, it, it's very similar to what this country was probably like the last time we had a civil war, these two polarized uh, places, getting their information only from uh, sources that reinforce their belief in slavery or their belief in the, uh, in the sanctity and, and, the, and keeping together the union. Um, so you had these polarized views, um, no real uh, effort to, to hear each other on either side, and it leads to civil war. And it, it was a long time ago, I remember you predicted that it would be like it is today and that you predicted it, it could even get worse going forward. And, and this echo chamber is a big part of that. Yeah, and, and you know, I would say what really concerns me in the communication space, and I mean, you know, people have to make money, they've got to eat, but there are communicators. I mean, this this did not happen by accident. Um, I mean, th this is a system that was has been set up and, and I'm not a like, be afraid of tech or be afraid of government or be afraid of whatever. But I mean, we didn't get here by accident. There are people that have deliberately set up these algorithms for a reason. There are communicators, very smart communicators and data science professionals that are facilitating this occurrence. And there are people, whether they are in politics or whether they are in marketing, that take advantage of this, or, or there are enemies of the United States that are taking advantage of this. And one, as a communicator, I think we need to be aware of it. Two, as a citizen, um, we need to be aware of it. And I would say as business owners, we have decided not to play into this, not to play into the false narrative game, not to play into the information manipulation game. Because again, at the end of the day, truth makes for the best PR. At some point, people are going to figure this out. I had hoped that it would happen a lot sooner, but at some point, the bottom is going to fall out of this. Yeah, well, we'll uh, we'll be here to we'll be here to talk about it. <laughs> Listen, uh, we took a look back, and when we return, we're going to deep dive. This is an important one, folks. You're listening to Three Season a Pod. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. We're back and it's time to deep dive. Folks, there's no shortage of news coverage surrounding the tragedy which took place in California Sunday morning, where NBA legend Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter Gianna, and seven others were killed in a helicopter crash just north of Los Angeles on their way to a travel basketball game. It's an event met with sorrow, disbelief, and great reflection from across the world of sports, entertainment, and the general public. We're going to spend a little time today touching on the career of Kobe Bryant and the devastating loss of nine individuals and those they leave behind to mourn this tragic circumstance. Chris, I'll throw it to you first. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I mean, obviously, it was shocked on uh, Sunday af afternoon. I mean, not on a on a personal level, shocked and saddened. Um, I think I'm a little. I mean, Kobe is of our age, but as a basketball fan, um, I was a huge Jordan fan, like most people. Uh, of our age group, I kind of went away from the NBA during the Kobe Shaq time. So I've, I've always um, enjoyed watching Kobe um, and honestly had really enjoyed 
Kobe as he tried very hard to recover from uh, the allegations that were levied against him and how he tried very hard to be a family uh, man and do right by his his spouse and his his daughters. Um, so I, I was more interested in that. Um, I also was interested in him as a business person. Less of a shock or less of a concern about it from a basketball standpoint, but just as as a visible member of um, you know pop culture, and as somebody that now has a, a daughter uh, about the age of, of Gigi, really liked watching him mentor and teach and develop his relationship with his daughter. And I think that's what I'm the most struck by and, and sad about the loss of a father, the loss of a husband, and the loss of a, a role model now for young girls sports and young girls and dads issues. So um, that, that's my immediate reaction. I mean, I have some thoughts on how this fits into the news cycle or some lessons that have come out of the reporting and reactions, but we, we can talk about that towards the end of this. Okay. Uh, John, how about you? Uh, wh where were you on Sunday when this all came uh, to a head? Um, I was just picking up my son um, at a hitting clinic. Uh, for his travel baseball team. And I was watching the University of Maryland basketball game and uh, texting back and forth with Chris uh, about a bunch of stuff, but you know, specific about um, you know, the Maryland basketball game. And then all of a sudden it just popped up that, uh, that Kobe died. And, and I, I remember certain deaths um, or, or events, you know, everyone talks about where they were on 9-11 and I'm not trying to say that Kobe's death is like 9-11. Um, I'm just trying to say that there are times um, that, that deaths like these become the things you remember forever. Um, I remember specifically where I was, what time of day it was, what I was wearing when I found out that Len Bias died. Um, uh, which I, I think can possibly be the last time something of this level took place, or I remember exactly what uh, the reaction was on a global level when Magic went from being an all-star and you know, maybe making another run at the NBA title um, to the very next day doing a press conference saying he had AIDS and he was gone from basketball. Um, and back then, everyone thought that AIDS was death. And so it was almost like his living obituary happening right there. Um, I, I remember those moments, but I, I, this one, I never liked Kobe. I'll be very honest about it. I never liked his style. I never liked the Lakers. Um, but like Chris was saying, I really respected how likable he tried to become and how likable he became in the aftermath of the Colorado sexual assault allegation um, that was settled out of court, uh, settled in a civil suit, uh, never taken to court. Um, he really rebuilt himself from that, and, and I respected that. Uh, I'll end by saying that I can't imagine being with my kid, um, and I've got um, you know, a 14-year-old, not a 13-year-old, or with my 16-year-old or my 11-year-old, in those last five to 10 seconds is that helicopter is is crashing into the ground um just the fear what's going through your mind it's just sad and um 
those poor kids, those poor families. It's uh, that was a terrible day, and it continues to be very sad for me. It's uh, it's been hard, and and it, and that's I can't believe I just said that, but it's been hard to what what I mean by that is it's been hard to grab a hold of why it uh, it why it hurts. And I didn't, I think I, I'm pretty sure I saw Kobe in person once. And what I mean by that is that I saw him play like at a Wizards game when, when the Lakers were in town. So I was asking this question to a couple of people like, like why, why does it, why do you feel the, a connection to the grief? Um, why is it so hard to process? And, and as I look on, certain social media platforms or talk with people that I know and I see that they're sharing the same thing. And and Chris, as you mentioned first and, and John, you followed up on, a lot of that has to do with the father figure that we saw and and the the sort of, you know, the the times, the videos that we see of him interacting with his daughter, um, Gigi, um, and he and, and his other children as as well, his other daughters as well. And I think that's what 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 really stings the most and you and you just feel for his family but let me not let me let me go a little further here because there were there were two other sets of parents and children also aboard that helicopter uh as well as the 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 coach who leaves behind a son and a husband um so i mean it you know while while Kobe Bryant is this, you know, world renowned, you know, basketball figure uh, and 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 now uh, business figure uh, later in you know after his uh, retirement, there were these other families that have just suffered tremendous loss, and uh, and oh gosh, it's just it it it's stunning, it, it it's stunning. Uh, for for us to see the the fragility of life played out in an instance, uh, and 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 I guess I look at myself because I, I I was asking myself, well, this event, this helicopter crash, while a tragedy, there are these other tragic events that happen all the time. Um, and, and you just, I don't know if it's that I don't have, you know, you don't have the capacity to, to give your heartstrings to each one, or you just, you're, you're sort of busy with your own life. And then something like this, because of the, 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 the media splash to it, you know, sucks up all the oxygen in the room. I think it's okay not to know why it bothers you or why it bothers, you know, some people on some levels and others on, on, you know, unique levels for them. I mean, I think that this is a phenomenon of the work that folks do. I mean, Kobe is a, was a known personality, was a known brand. Um, and, and I don't mean to bring it back to like the business, but I mean, all of these folks, because of mass media, they're made to almost be part of our community. And in some cases, like part of our family. And so I think that when they pass, um, we feel it like a loss of a family member. 
and then we start to think about our own family or how we would deal with it. That adds to the, the pain and the anguish. In my family, we kind of always joke that um, Italian-Americans do grief really well. Like if there's one thing that we do, we pull the stops out on, it's, it's grief. Whether it's feeling sad and then it's celebrating the person and then it's like, you know, partying and eating afterwards. I mean, in some ways, like as a country, we do grief uh, people really well um, and to a large degree. And so whether it's the people that went immediately to the crash area or to the Staples Center or the Grammys remembering them, and I'm sure we're going to see a remembrance at the Super Bowl or the coverage across all forms of media. I mean, I, that, that is the communication and entertainment environment that, that we live in. And uh, I think, you know, it, it probably only can, continues. And I think it's okay for us each to kind of take our own unique piece of that as we work through this grieving process. I think it's a product of how we've aged and where we are in our own lives uh, with our families that I was shocked by his death. Um, I was shocked by the news that he went down in a helicopter. I didn't become sad about it. I was not as moved as I was um, when I found out that, that Gigi was on board and that there were other families on board. Um, you know, at first, I think it, the very first report was Kobe and the pilot and two others died in a, in a helicopter crash. And I was like, man, that's, that's unbelievable. And then as, as the stories came out, then, then, you, then I felt the, the true gut punch of it all. Um, as a sports fan, I, I, yeah, it's a huge, huge loss for the sports world. That, like we keep saying, Kobe was becoming so much more than that. Guy had an Academy Award um, and, and was truly on an upward glide slope in life. Retirement did not mean the end for him. Retirement really meant the beginning. And, and I'll, I'll kind of segue it into the communications aspect of this that, that you guys were talking about a little bit before and that I joke all the time on here about getting your press releases out right when a huge celebrity death takes place. And I do that, hey, you know, all I needed was the Brad Pitt death and, uh, and we could have gotten this bad news release out and it would have been lost. I, I struggle to think of, of other people, not that I want to play like some death wish game here, but who else and, and their death or their removal from our lives that, you know, when they become so part of our lives through mass media, as Chris said, but who else out there is Kobe-like in, in when they leave us that it makes such a huge national and international mark? Is it Brad Pitt? I always just said Brad Pitt because I thought he was the most popular actor. Um, I, I don't know, but it, it truly did and is now still owning the news cycle, and, and it should. It, 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 it requires a lot of remembrance and recognition of who he was. Do either of you all feel that the NBA should have canceled the games on Sunday? No. In fact, I'll, I'll be really quick in, in why. I think logistically, you already had a bunch of people like, you know, the, by the time the very first game that day was Denver Houston, it started at 3.30. Those dudes had already tipped by the time they found out it was actually Kobe, um, or it was right before tip. Um, and so I think you then create, uh, for them, I, I almost thought that they had to look at it from sheer logistics, like, hey, we've already got streams of fans, NBA tickets are not cheap. 
Um, are we going to cause logistical nightmares in 10 different cities by canceling games on short notice? Or do we let them go on and do we, and do we possibly get the value of humanizing our employees? If I'm David Silver and I'm like, well, and I'm not saying he's this calculated, but you're like, hey, you know, Kobe would want them to play probably. And I don't know if that's how it was communicated to the players, but I think that they would probably say Kobe would want the game to go on. He believed that much in the game. Uh, but then from a communications and logistics standpoint, I just think they looked at it as, hey, we're going to cause much more of a ruckus by canceling everything. And it's only five games on the schedule. Let's play the five games and then we can cancel everything else on Sunday. I do want to just kind of point out a couple things that I saw and that maybe we go back to at, at a different point. There is an interesting discussion going on about the role of new media like a TMZ or web-based media that don't really have the same um, approach to reporting that traditional media does. And so how this accident and the people that were on board, um, how that was all reported is now under scrutiny and I think will continue to be under scrutiny in terms of like, hey, do you report the accident and then give some time for uh, for investigators and family to be notified and then at some defined point, do you name um, who the, the injured or deceased are or do you just go with what you have? I mean, we saw a lot of speculation on the part of, um, you know, armchair media members uh, in terms of who was on that flight. Um, you know, where, where does that fit in the cycle? And then I would, so, I mean, that, that I think is going to play out and probably bear some discussion at some point. And then there's this, uh, I saw a lot on social media, um, this idea that, um, you know, hey, Kobe died or nine people died. And like, why are they being remembered? And why are people upset about them? Um, you know, we had a police officer die, or we had a firefighter die, or we had a, a soldier in Iraq die. And I just, I, I mean, one, we just talked about kind of how nuance is lost on social media. So all of those arguments, I, I think, hold. But also, I just don't get that. You know, there was a high profile example of that the head of the Army Reserve Officer Training Command made a tweet essentially to that effect and was really pummeled. So I think that's probably something we should come back to as well as we look at, you know, whenever there's this big issue like John described, we ought to go back and really look at the lessons here to to make sure that we don't get lost in the specific details, that we can pull on the strings of the lessons so that we don't make these types of mistakes in the future. Yeah, no, you're, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Um, I try to steer clear um, just for my own sanity. Uh, I try to steer clear of the, um, the sort of Michigas, of that in, included people you know using twitter using social media to stand on their platform or stand on you know well here's how i'm feeling <laughs> uh you know um and 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 look i i'm i'm not the i'm not the one setting all the rules out here by any stretch uh i have my own sense of of, of morality and uh, in, integrity or, or how I would choose to uh, express grief. And this was a situation where, um, I mean, if you, I guess if you maybe check my, my Twitter feed, you're probably not going to see anything there 
on there since Saturday. I mean, it's it just, it's okay to be quiet. It really is. It's really okay uh, to, to not say anything. And that's, that's Bashan man's theory, uh, you know, <laughs> on, on the world. It doesn't mean anything, but. Uh, no, but I think that social media has changed that, that before when people, um, you know, like the Italians did grief really well and, um, and it was okay to be silent on things and just grieve in your own way. Social media has almost driven people to want to hot take their grief and, um, and then hot take their reactions to the grief, which in the case of the army general uh, with an incredibly insensitive and stupid tweet, you know, you, you're in the heat of that moment with the raw emotion of it uh, you know, going through you you're not necessarily going to comport yourself as well as, as you normally would. So I agree with you completely that silence and just grieving on your own in this particular case, probably the best part because your, your hot takes, including media hot takes of the event, sometimes end up in misinformation or just you know revealing yourself to not be as good as you possibly could be. And Chris and I were talking yesterday that there was a video of the Hilo crash circulating on circle me social media that everyone thought was legit. Hey, there, here's a helicopter crashing into a mountain. This has got to be it. You know, just because some random account says, here's the video of Kobe's crash, please don't circulate it. Um, and it ended up not being legit. Fooled me. I showed like five different people that, that uh, video. So the, the speed to get stuff out and, and the yearning to believe like all these hot takes out there creates kind of a hostile environment, you know, at a very sad time. It's okay to be quiet. That's the best advice I've heard in a, in a long time. Ara Zobayan, Sarah Chester, Peyton Chester, Christina Mauser, Carrie Altabelli, John Altabelli, Alyssa Altabelli, Gianna, Gigi Bryant, and Kobe Bryant. May they all rest in peace. Stay with us. We're going to come right back and look out on the horizon. You're listening to Three Season a Pod. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. Welcome back to Three Season A Pod with Provision Advisors. Gentlemen, let's look out on the horizon and what the days ahead may bring. John, what do you got? I am looking out on the horizon at the, the case of you being done with the past, but the past isn't quite done with you. Um, and that is, the, uh, that is the ballad of Prince Andrew right now. The time when everyone's talking about Kobe, Prince Andrew found a way to make news today. And it's that it was revealed that, that he has not just been silent in the uh, Jeffrey Epstein investigation, but he's actually been... Uh, completely uncooperative, and he got called out by the investigators uh, for, for being that way. Now, again, we've talked about Harry and Meghan and what calculus went into their thinking, and I made a joke, you know, Harry's probably like, get me as far away from Prince Andrew as, as I can be. That might actually be a little bit true, because for every time he says nothing, and for every time that he's absolutely uncooperative in an investigation, if you have nothing against you, if you didn't do anything wrong, why are you not cooperating against someone who, by all accounts, is a monster? Um, the answer might be that you're a little bit of a monster yourself. And uh, on the horizon, I think he's got a whole lot more problems coming his way. 
All right, we will stay tuned. Chris? So I'm looking at the changes in the Republican approach to how they're going to handle the impeachment. We talked a lot about how each side was progressing last week, but with the leak of galleys of John Bolton's upcoming autobiography or memoir or whatever you want to call it, and some of the characterizations and rememberings that he had of events uh, involving the president. I think the Republican approach of just get through this week as quick as possible, hope that it goes away and focus on something else. Whether you thought that was right or wrong, I think at this point, as a communication strategy, it's a lot less practical. I want to see how that develops over the next week um, and to what degree voters will hold them accountable in how they handle it. And then speaking of voters, kind of tied to this in my mind is the upcoming Iowa caucus. What effect will the impeachment have on how Iowans caucus? What effect will it have on the ability of those candidates who are members of the U.S. Senate to actually sprint hard towards the finish line for Iowa and, you know, set up ground game in New Hampshire and other states. So that, that's what I'm watching over the, the next couple uh, days and weeks. Certainly uh, interesting how events in the news, major events in the news, uh, have pulled the nation seemingly in, in, in certain directions uh, and other things that we thought were going to be sort of top of mind. Uh, aren't necessarily there at the moment. So yes, we will continue to watch those. Speaking of that, there's a Super Bowl coming up, in, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, uh -huh. Super Bowl Super Bowl 54 is to take place on February 2nd, uh, kickoff right around 6.30 p.m. Given the, uh, you know, the events that, the tragic events that took place uh, with the death of, um, of Kobe Bryant uh, and others out in LA, it seems as if a lot of the oxygen has been sucked out of the room. Uh, what I will be looking at uh, over the course of this week is how the NFL moves itself towards uh, promotion of the game and 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 getting people uh, to tune in. I'll tell you what, this is a great time to to uh, ask each of you for your predictions. Uh, John, who do who do you have winning? I have myself winning um, the Super Bowl squares that uh, my son had to sell as fundraisers for uh, their travel baseball team. I just hope that my numbers come up and I win a lot of money. Other <laughs> than that, I cannot possibly care less about these two teams. Uh, I, I, you know, in the past, if there were teams in there that, that I hated, I would actually watch. Like if the Patriots were playing, I'd root for anyone who was playing against the Patriots. In this particular case, both of these teams are likable and they they have great athletes. They're just teams that I don't follow and don't care about. So I'm rooting for myself. I'm rooting for, uh, for good uh, commercials, and I'm rooting for a very classy and very, uh, and very special uh, remembrance of Kobe during the game. I hope they do that. All right. Chris? So my prediction is the uh, Chiefs come out slow uh, in typical Andy Reid fashion. Um, the 49ers put up two or three touchdowns early. And then Patrick Mahomes leads a exciting comeback in the second half, and the Chiefs win by three, their first Super Bowl win in many, many years. So uh, that, that's my prediction. Um, but I do want to just add one thing. I'm sorry. Sure. I, I, yeah, no problem. Uh, I am so struck uh, by this Mr. Peanut Super Bowl drama. We're going to share this in our clips of the week. 
I guess apparently as a setup for the Super Bowl commercial, uh, Mr. Peanut died. Uh, he sacrificed himself and died in a traffic accident. You know, the character Mr. Peanut and right. the Super Bowl commercial was supposed to include imagery of the wake uh, of Mr. Peanut. And now planners and whoever owns planners have said this isn't going to happen out of respect for Kobe Bryant and what people are feeling. If there was ever an otter confluence and intersection of pop culture, uh, I, I think the Mr. Peanut Super Bowl funeral story is, is it. So uh, I would encourage you to go out and read that. Yeah, I'll definitely have to be checking that out. I guess for me at this point, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen any videos of the uh, of Andy Reid uh, as a youngster in the punt pass kick uh, competition. I'm still I'm still going to keep an eye out for that <laughs> leading into the Super Bowl. Uh, don't have a dog in the fight, but uh, don't know if uh, Jimmy G uh, is going to be able to lead his team. I guess he doesn't have to, right? Uh, if the, the defense and the running game does his business, but uh, yeah, keep an eye on Patrick Mahomes. I think he's. I think he's got the goods, so uh, could be could be looking at a uh, Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl winner here. Before yeah. you close out, um, so 34 years ago this week, the Challenger exploded. I didn't want to do this in my uh, in my rear view, but um, y you know it is something to think about for people our age and what that meant for us and what that meant for us in terms of experiencing a significant event from afar very much remember how excited we were as a class to both watch the launch and then several days later we were going to watch the lesson that Krista McAuliffe was going to teach from from space and uh, spent a fair amount of time last night talking to my son about it in some ways relating it to the Kobe death in terms of like how things in the news affect people but uh, I did want to mention that so yeah, I, I'll never forget where I was. That's that's one of those examples I was talking about before. For our parents, it was where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you when the first step uh, was taken on the moon? Uh, for people our age, it's 9-11. It's uh, the Challenger. Um, talking to my sons about it too. No idea and they can't really grasp what the Challenger was because the space shuttle program is no more. So it's that's a good thing bringing up, Chris. Thanks. Seventh grade. Mrs. Hirschman's English class, Van Wyck Junior High School. Uh, remember it, definitely. Thank you, Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, we want to thank you for joining us here on Three Seas in a Pod. We want you to have a great rest of the week. And until we see you again, be good, be safe, and be better than yesterday. Thank you for listening to Three Seas in a Pod. Have a great week.